Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Vratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to be joined by a guest whose impact on the world of cult and horror cinema is undeniable. A star of stage and screen, she made her presence known to a whole generation with a role in the zeitgeist-defining Fast Times at Ridgemont High, did battle with killer robots at the Galleria in midnight movie fave Chopping Mall, and proved that Valley Girls for sure can fight back in horror classic Night of the Comet. She's a celebrated producer, performer, and a verified icon. Please welcome to the show, the incomparable Kelly Maroney. Thank you so much, Michael. May I have a copy of that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I can I can make that happen. That's fantastic. I've never heard such a great introduction. Thank you. Well, you know, I think whenever we have such amazing people on the show, I want to at least give them an amazing introduction. Beautiful. Uh, so I'm so excited to have you join us today and talk about your amazing career uh, in this industry because you have done so many cool things. And, you know, I think it's such a, a, a gift for any performer to be even in one thing that makes an impact. I always try to remember that, you know, you're, if you have one thing, because day in and day out, if you, if you, do, you don't look at it as a collective whole, right. you think, oh, my God, I need me. <laughs> you, you don't see the big picture. And... It's very useful to remember that, you know what, I'm in the good fortune, because there are so many talented people out right. there, the good fortune to have shown up and, and been part of such iconic moments right. is just unheard of. Well, and that's it. It's like, you know, to even have one thing is such a gift in, in, in the world of creation that, like, makes an impact. And you have been in several things that, like, really have just left things. their mark. And uh, I'm so excited to talk about those. So we might as well just jump into it. Great. Uh, I would like to start the show the same way I start every show okay. with the same first question I ask every guest. And it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. What's okay. your relationship to it? Or why do you think people are drawn to it? But why horror? Why horror? Um, well, my first impulse is to, this is Whenever anybody asks me a why question, um, there's a philosophy professor who has that on his final. The right. question is why, and the only correct answer is why not. Sure. Uh, but that's not an answer. So, <laughs> um, you know, I feel I feel like it's like a cat. Horror picks you. Interesting. Because, I mean, I was when I was a kid, I loved Betty Davis and I loved Susan Hayward and I loved the scary movies. And my mom, but I don't know what was wrong with her. She let me watch The Birds. Mm-hmm. I mean. And I was, I said, Mom, why did you let me watch that? You know, it was on te- all this stuff was on television, and I was always drawn to it because it was so impactful. You can watch something, and it, it does affect you, and it does touch you, or, but there's something about horror that grabs you. Right. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a super committed person, you know, in everything, and so, and probably a little too big. Um, but, but that affected me. That it was, how could they, you know. That was that was so. They had so many a bunch of guts to put that on film, and you know, weren't they afraid somebody they were going to get in trouble because right. there's a bird eating her head? And <laughs> so there was that, and then, um, um, but I wasn't consciously going. I'm going to be a horror actress, right? I, I think it's a um, like I said, it picks you, you know, and then and then you realize too that's where the parts are. I mean, yes, horror can be the redheaded stepchild. You know, and for many years, but you know, I have a history of that. When I was on daytime television, it was the redheaded stepchild. I got out here, and everyone went, uh, "Do you have any film on yourself?" And I went, "I have three years and almost four hundred episodes of daytime television." And they went, "No, not that. Do you have any film on yourself?" None of it counted as far as they were concerned. And then I went through the same thing with horror. It's like, oh, horror. 
Right. You know, somebody actually, people were actually saying, you know, don't let yourself be Googled and have only horror come up. It'll kill you. And I thought, well, you know, I've been killed so many times, it doesn't really matter. Um, <laughs> but there's so much creativity going on in horror that, you know, when you get to a different genre and a different, a lot of things are independent and have the independent budget. When you get into studio stuff, there is so much fear. Yeah. And so much less room to, for, for like, you know, a wild idea, some wild creativity that may or may not work because people, people's lives will be ruined. They'll be fired and don't, you know, it'll be, so there's, there's, there's fear. That's the best way I can put it. But in horror, they're not. And also, you know, um, you know, I, you can be in horror when you're a kid and you're running around in your underwear and like Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, when they, be, you know, they said, oh, we're horror hags now. Right. There's room for you to have these fantastic parts as you get older because you could always be evil or crazy or scary or whatever. So it's it just lends itself to a lifetime of, of you know, doing, telling fabulous stories. And I do find that the horror audience, once they embrace you, like you said, once horror comes to you and mm -hmm. finds you, there always seems to be room at the table, which I very find... Uh, great about this community it's a family i always tell people that it, it's unlike any other genre i've ever seen because it's very much like a family everybody seems to love and care about everybody else mm -hmm. and some of the scariest people can walk up to you like at a convention and they are dressed as satan and you say oh so what do you do and they say you know i work in hospice right or, you know i volunteer at an animal shelter they're the sweetest people and they have a personal connection and and the people that work within the industry, the other actors and the directors and the producers, and we all have a genuine love for each other that goes beyond a business relationship. And I know that sounds sappy, but I really find it to be true. No, I, I do as well. And I think that that's one of the great things about this uh, genre. And we were talking about it a little bit before we started rolling on mm -hmm. the episode is it's a community of people who find each other. And it's not just people who find each other because of this shared interest in art, but it's like a shared understanding of of what art can do and how it uh you know this thing that seemingly to the outside world may be grotesque or spooky or strange can actually be very mm -hmm. cathartic in a way and i love knowing that you know some of the people who make the most disturbed art are some of the nicest people yes, sweetest people uh so i i love this idea that horror is a cat i love that notion mm -hmm. that horror it's chooses fine. you it adopts you you um, don't have any say and if it doesn't want you well, it, horror always accepts you, so, but yeah, a cat will pick you. Right. Um, so let's talk about the time before horror picked you, though, because while mm -hmm. it, you know, while horror had to find you in your career as a performer, right? You always really wanted to be a performer. Is this true? When, oh yes. Tell, oh yes. Tell me about the origins. What what you know when you were growing up led you to say this is it. This is where I want to be. Um. Well, I was from Minnesota, and and it's um uh, in the Midwest. You're very nice, but you're um a lot of things are unacceptable. A lot of emotions and a lot of behavior is unacceptable, and it it was it was not that easy when I was growing up. And on, on in the movies, my mother would watch the movies, and her face would change, and she would tell me stories of when she was a girl going to the movies, and they were saying and doing things that you'd get killed for in reality. Right. And and it, it's. You could walk around never having your your heart touched, but when you're watching something, I mean, that's the purpose is to have your heart touched and right. for you to have an experience. And I thought, why would we want to do anything else except for this? 
and I just never wanted to do it. That's that's how I felt. I love that. I love that watching movies made you feel like this is how I want to experience the world because there's an honestness in that performance. Right. Uh, but, you know, I, I lived in the Midwest for a long time. I went to college in Ohio uh, and, and then subsequently lived in Pittsburgh. And I, I think the idea of going and making movies in the middle of the country seems so distant and far. Uh, what? Tell me about that journey. Like, you know, from Minnesota to soap operas that's I mean it's wild like in a way well we didn't I didn't even have a theater company in in my call at my college at my high school so I was an apprentice at the Guthrie theater and they they we were extras and we were extras in the pretender and Hamlet and all that stuff this Mm -hmm. one season we had F. Murray Abraham and uh, William H. Macy and um I, you know, a bunch of that, that were doing Lord Theater. They weren't. Ephemer, uh, they weren't. Um, I already said him. They weren't um, famous or anything. They were just working actors. Right. So they said, "Well, we'll just give classes instead." And I remember specifically getting up and doing an improv with um, for F. Murray Abraham, and I felt like he really got me. I mean, even though I had no experience and and I was scared and you know it was not theatrical. I was not fabulous yet at all. I was you know mousy and. <laughs> Unlike now, I'm still mousy, but um, um, it, that's like a drug. Somebody gets you as right. like a drug. And then I happened to notice that there was this school and um, the National Shakespeare Company Conservatory, and I had already graduated and all that stuff. So I, I was able to go. My mother said, don't hang around here. You're just going to get pregnant or something. There's nothing here for you. Go and do what you want to do and go as fast as you want. Because I was the last kid. All her other kids were all grown up when I was mm-hmm. born. And she just went, you know what? Well, just go. Right. Um, she goes, what do you want to sit around here with me for? And um, um, so I did. And I was scared to death. And then I went back for the winter program. And, you know, almost, I mean, I, we were coming up with this money. We sold a piano that we had. So I get I hit Manhattan with $500, and I'm going to this school. And I don't really feel like I fit in with this school either because right. everyone's theatrical, and, you know, and I'm not. And and then I was looking for a place to live, and I was too young, and I couldn't get a job. I had an application out of the Bloompies, but, um, you know, I... I, I age myself up because I wasn't old enough to work there so <laughs> not I mean, old enough to work the at whole, Blimpies the whole, and, and you know Blimpies like I was going to make a living at Blimpies um, well but, maybe in the Manhattan of yesteryear but. no <laughs> trust me no it was where all the scam artists hung out this is like in Hell's Kitchen um, um, she said I might be able to find your roommate you know but you don't have a job and you, you don't have very much money but well she said you know what the, my friend is telling me about a, a part they're trying to cast on a soap opera it's for a midwestern lolita and where she got this i don't know people have an essence you know because right. i was bedraggled and i was not like sexy or hot or any of those things i was sitting there like a drowned rat going i don't know where to live <laughs> like, <laughs> she's midwestern lolita i'm like how do you get that um and so I went over, and this agent's office was the size of of this of you know a closet. Right. And she said, "You have a picture." I had one picture of myself. She said, "Take it over, slide it in. They're they're gone. Slide it under the door." And I did, and and I got called in, and I was scared to death. But you know what? It's something that huge and out of your experience happens. You go, "This is so weird. It has to work." Right. Because there's no way this is happening. And so I'm screen testing with the guy who I had the major storyline with. And 
I was so tired of worrying about myself, and I, he looked so tired that I reached. It wasn't even part of my character. Mm-hmm. I reached up and patted his face, and I had no business doing that. I didn't know the guy or anything like that. I just felt for the guy so much. He just looked beleaguered, and I got the part because. And it wasn't. It's so interesting to me as an actor. It wasn't even in character. That's interesting. But they saw something. And what I think, and that was for Ryan's mm-hmm. Hope. That was for Ryan's Hope. So what I like about this story, and I, I've, I've heard you uh, tell some variations of this before, the, mm-hmm. you know, going to New York with $500, and, <laughs> which is which seems like so harrowing in a way. Like, it was ridiculous. It was the stupidest thing anyone has ever done. And when my mother came to visit me, she, she was horrified. She said, I would have never ever let you do this i don't you know god but meanwhile just she was the one who told you to go <laughs> yeah but I, our idea of new york city was like um um an affair to remember right <laughs> we didn't realize and this was you know 1980 and it was still mean streets right there was the minnesota strip happening um which was a, a place where they would kidnap young girls from minnesota blonde hair blue eyes and and prostitute them out and i could have you know, there's like, you, you could have gone either way there, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> but what I think is really interesting about this is here, you know, we talk about the idea that you're growing up in Minnesota, you watch movies and you you think to yourself, this is something that I want to do. And you, you seek out Shakespearean training from a, mm-hmm. from a school that didn't even have, have a theater program. And you end up mm-hmm. working kind of out of the gate with people like F. Murray Abraham and William H. Macy. And then you go to New York and the first audition that you get, basically just with hopes of getting an apartment, lands you on TV. That's so outrageous that you you just put one foot in front of the other and experience it happening because you're not doing it. Right. And then, you know, later on, I would learn more about all this. Um, You create your own reality and visualize. And I thought, I didn't, there's no way I visualized that. Right. It was out of my experience I had no idea but something something must have I don't know what was driving me that's a really good question stupidity I think (laughs) it had to be but I I have to wonder because you've been in the industry now for a while uh, and you have seen kind of how the audition process goes and like how movies are cast and how like things are all like anything ever gets done it's it's a miracle anyone ever gets a part so you've got to look back on that and think how wild I do because m- I do. And it, you know what? It's kept me going too because I had that experience that something like that right. can happen and will happen. So no matter how, how, you know, scary things got for me, I was that, that can and will happen. It's sort of like and, the, that, the, what is it, the, the, the secret where you put it out in the universe and mm-hmm. it comes to you. Because, you know, one of the things, like, if you were to uh, have, if we got a bunch of, of uh, industry pals together and went and, like, had lunch at Cantor's or some Hollywood location, and we talked about mm-hmm. the things that, like, everyone elsewhere thinks about Hollywood, one of them that, like, frequently comes up is just the idea that you're just going to be discovered somewhere, nah. which, like, really doesn't <laughs> happen. No. But... It kind of happened where you're looking for an apartment. They're like Midwestern Lolita. So like everything. And, you know, honestly, I, I always look at so many other talented actors. In that case, there were there were young girls auditioning for that part that had been training since they were three. Right. You know, that had been on television a lot that knew, you know, knew what they were doing. Right. right? Um, that weren't going by instinct like I was. Right. And, um, and yet I got the part. 
And so you can never ever think, oh, it always goes to that, you know. No, it doesn't. It goes to, it, it's it's like Zen. It's like, a, right. it's spiritual. This path is spiritual because there's no rhyme or reason. You know, you don't get XX degree and then you, you do this and that and you make right. this much money and you go get this kind of job. That's not what happens. It's free for all. It's, um, and that's why I think of it as a spiritual path. What I do think is is kind of cool about it, though, is you, you had theater experience, but really, in a way, your film school and was, was on the set of of a, a soap opera. I was going to conservatory, but the soap opera was my conservatory, because once I got that job, then the name of the game was "Do not get fired." Right. Do not have to go home with your tail. If this thing happens, and then you go home with your tail between your legs. It's right. not going to happen. And fortunately for me, the woman who played my mother said. You know, she took me under her wing. She could have, she could have absolutely said, "I'm not having anything to do with this." And within one or two shows, they would have had to let me go because right. she could have, she would just have overwhelmed me. And instead, she taught me how to cry on cue. And I mean, we we had this wonderful mother daughter relationship that they um, they worked for like three years. Mm-hmm. And everybody I I came across, you know, um, but especially Louise and. It served me for the rest of my life because when I got out to California and these were you know independent low budget movies, the people that were on daytime television already knew their lines, already knew their blocking, and when you got to do it, okay, one for safety, they'd go, "We get to do it again, right?" Because that wasn't our experience. If you messed up, you kept going because if you stopped tape, you you could you could get fired, and if the set fell down behind you, you just pretended it didn't. And you did an episode a day, right? That was that how yes. that worked? And sometimes more than one. But Ryan's Hope was shot old fashioned. It was shot um, rehearsal, run through, lunch, dress rehearsal, and taping. But we were the only ones that shot at old school like that. We were in the old Dark Shadows studio. Oh, I was going to ask because, and was it taped live as well? No, or, we no, weren't okay. live. Okay. We weren't live. Um, but all the other shows with the more state of the art equipment and stuff, they would have. Okay, your storyline is in at seven. We're going to tape that till ten. Right, and then your storyline. So they would do it in chunks like that, and we weren't doing that yet. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, this is something when I knew you were coming on, I was kind of very excited to talk about because I don't think in the history of Dead for Filth we've ever really dug into the world of soap operas. But I think that there's a really interesting correlation between the world of soap operas and sort of the horror genre in the way that uh, there is sort of a cult community around both. Yes. And I think that soap opera fans fans. are very dedicated. Uh, And, you know, I I love Dark Shadows. I was a Dark Shadows enthusiast. I still am. Um, But then I remember like the summer uh, where uh, Marlena got possessed on Days of Our Lives or Mm -hmm. uh, and there is just some interesting compulsion uh, with with this world and I love that you were so um, part of this run of this show soap opera fans uh, must have prepared you in some way for horror oh yeah oh yes because I used to get you know like normal letters and then variations all the way to frightening letters and then you know before frightening letters was these people think that we're real right there's a lot of that we came into their homes every single day. Right. They felt that they knew us, you know. Um, but horror and soap operas, they we're both working without a net. It's right. 
it's the the drama is so dramatic. I mean, you're going to get hit in the head with an axe. Um, you're going. I mean, my character was always like falling out of windows, or you know, waking up eight months pregnant, or you know, or lying about being pregnant, or you know, slapping my mother, or you know, then we shot somebody. We did the Lana Turner story. It was all huge, and it was without a net. And right. then you get on the horror set, and it's the same thing. It's like we have a dollar fifty. How are we going to make this scary? Right. Uh, what I like about it, too, is they're both kind of mediums of, of heightened presentation. Yes, and I guess I am that, although I don't feel that I am. I guess everyone else would beg to differ. Well, do you find that, because um, you, you referred to yourself earlier as, as mousy, but I don't see that. I think that you have are very dynamic, and I'm wondering if, though, the, the performance allows you to let that out. Maybe that's what you were talking about when you were a kid. Like you see this, these things that you don't feel like you can do in life that you can do on screen. Is there is that like maybe the power of it all? Maybe. And also, I think I probably I, I'm just a, I'm very driven. Mm-hmm. About, you know, when I do something, especially a, a play a part, it's I, I Louise said about me once. She said, you, you don't just play a scene. You just like dive in with both feet and don't know if you're going to come back out or not. And I've always, that's how I like doing it. And so um, um, that that was in me, but there was no way to express it. Mm-hmm. And so I spent a lot of time, when I say mousy, I spent a lot of time like listening. Right. Because I didn't feel like I belonged where I was and I didn't know what was going on. And I felt all I could do was make a fool of myself or have people not, not like me or something. So I just sat there and didn't say anything. Right. And that's, that's what I mean. Well, and I think then... Uh, that kind of ties into the theme of the show a little mm-hmm. bit because you said that you know you didn't feel like you belonged. I, not at all. But then you end up in this genre that is all about finding the people who didn't feel like they belonged and creating a community of it. I mean, one of the mm-hmm. things that like listening to you talk about horror uh, as you did at the beginning of the show, you instantly went to the discussion of community mm-hmm. and finding your place there. And I think that there's something really um, empowering about that, uh, which, you know, I, I think uh, is a good message, really. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. You could find your own family, find your own I mean, and we, we do say that's not a new thought. I mean, we've always said, you you know, you can, when you grow up, you can find your own family. Right. And you can pick the family that you want and the friends that you want and the group yeah. that you want. It just kind of sucks when you're young and you're kind of stuck with what you got. But it mm-hmm. doesn't mean that's forever. Um, but like you, I think that when people have these movies or things that are windows to what the world could be. I'm not necessarily saying like the horror aspect, but like, oh, there's a bigger world than my small town oh. than, than my small house than you know the small minded people who I go to school with I think there's something exciting about yeah. that and I think that maybe that's why we need this art yeah well part of, I think part of what propelled me to New York was I couldn't stay there right I just couldn't I just thought I'm not gonna make it here I'm just not it's not gonna I can't be here <laughs> and then you know not only could you not be there you you chased your dream and quite promptly ended up on a televised soap opera. I think the universe did that because they didn't want me to give up. <laughs> and you did, you said you did over 400 episodes? Yeah. Or? Yeah. And I was on One Life to Live too. Um, so yeah, 
hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of television. That's the best school in the whole world. Well, and then let's talk about, we talked about sort of like the great um, serendipity of ending up on this show. And then you come to mm-hmm. California. Or, well, we're not 100% come to California yet, but the next thing from soap opera is you go out and audition for a movie. Mm-hmm. And that first feature film that you do is Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Right. It's crazy. Which, again, like, talk about upward mobility. Like, um, you could have been in any movie as your first movie, but the movie as your first feature film ends up becoming this pop culture landmark directed by the amazing Amy Heckerling, written by Cameron Crowe, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and is still like one of the, the zeitgeist defining teen movies of all time. And... Um, you were still in New York when you auditioned for that, I was. Right? They, they kept writing me off the soap because ABC and the original creators of the show were in a power struggle. Mm-hmm. So when the creators of the show, Claire Levine, um, and, um, were in power, right. quote unquote, they would write everybody off that ABC wanted and they right. would have their original characters. And then when ABC was in power, they'd say, no, these characters are coming in and they're going to pull ratings because you don't. And so... Uh, there was a push me pull you and and we were you know we'd be on we'd be off and so I was just sitting there by this time I I knew that you know I had to keep my expenses down because this situation which is not healthy for anyone by the way no. you're in you're out you're in you're out um, um, and so actually my first movie that I did was called Slayground but but it, it didn't come out until after there it is because uh, Fast Times is eighty two right and Slayground right. was released in eighty three right but you shot Slayground first just immediately before so I was like one of those times I was written off the soap but I didn't know it was one of those times I thought it was forever right uh, but because I was lucky enough to get on the soap I got a legitimate agent and people saw me for legitimate things you know I had a meeting with Robert Altman I had a meeting with Woody Allen I actually ended up in a Woody Allen movie that I couldn't do. Um, I auditioned for, um, uh, oh gosh, Otto Preminger. Um, you know, I was like, they were taking me seriously. It was right. awesome. Uh, so tell me a little bit about Slayground because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, obviously that would be the first horror project you were in. Right. And uh, just uh, what was your experience on that movie? Okay, so um, I'm always drawn, I was really confused when I, I started and I came up to California and I was cast as two, two cheerleaders in a row. Because in New York, I mean, the, the soap opera that I was on, I was a bad, horrible, horrible person. It was really flashy and great. Right. And then so this 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 part, um, it was, I knew what it was right away. It was the hitchhiker. And you were supposed to think that I was the victim. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert here. Um, and then I turned out to be psycho. And it was just, it's not a huge part. It just opens the movie. Right. And so I went psycho because, you know, I, I know better now, but maybe I don't. Maybe I should go back to do this again. Um, I just went psycho. And I listen, <laughs> and it said Mahler was playing. It ended up to be bad to the bone. But in the script, it was Mahler. And so I listened to Mahler. And I got psycho. And then they put me on tape. And so when I got the part, I said, so would you, to the director, would you like me to do that again? Was that what you wanted? He goes, that was nothing like what I wanted. But I knew you could do this if you could do that. 
<laughs> Things were different back then. There was less fear. Right. There was a ton less fear and more room for more creativity and for following your heart and your instincts. And now everybody's so scared. It wasn't exactly like it was supposed to be and I could lose my job and I can't do that like it is now. What do you think changed from your, your perspective? Marketing people. Yeah. And this was happening while I was moving to California. It was already in place, but I we we couldn't see it yet manifest. Mm-hmm. The studios in the seventies got tired of never knowing if they were going to make a fortune or lose their shirt. Right. And this they went. This is a business. This is not like Las Vegas, and we have to figure out a way to know if something's going to make us money. We need security, and so they hired all the marketing graduates from all the Ivy League studios, and they are still here today to come in and figure out, okay, what's going to make money? You know, what can you rely on? Right. And they started to do all these tests and everything like that. And we still have it now. And that was starting to happen, um, I guess, in the late 70s, but definitely in the 80s. And by the time we all saw it, you and I and everybody else, it was, that's the way it was. And so a lot of us grew up, the movies that we grew up thinking, that's the kind of business that we want to be in, that business is gone. It's true, you know, because one of the discussions that frequently happens too, even with regard to genre, if you watch like a movie where, uh, or like Larry Cohen's The Stuff comes to mind, because it's a movie about killer yogurt with Michael Moriarty <laughs> and Paul Sorvino. You've got these Academy Award nominated actors made by a studio. Mm-hmm. Um, no studio would greenlight that today no, no. because it's not safe. And I think that that's a really interesting uh, point is that the the movies that we think of as sort of the, the movies that defined a generation weren't safe. Like you said it earlier, mm-hmm. they were made without a net. Mm-hmm. Um, but now people are so afraid to not have that net. And so the the very landscape that defined a lot of the industry isn't there anymore. And yet the industry is still barreling ahead as if it's making the same kinds of films, but it's not. Mm, but it's not. Because we have to. Otherwise, a lot of people, if they thought, well, I'm making formulaic, Movies where, you know, they know that they're going to make money and we're selling toothpaste. They couldn't get up in the morning. That's right. not why we do That's not why we did this. Right. And so I think it's, uh, well, they can do, I can't control what they're doing out there, but I can control how I feel about my heart and my soul and my work. Right. And that's what I have to offer. And I can offer that in whatever um, um, situation I'm presented with. And right. that's how we survive. <sighs> and- powerful words uh i do think that uh there's just something really interesting and uh significant about what you said about there was less fear i just i i I keep thinking about that because the idea too and i think i think digital culture probably changed a lot of that too where everything lives forever whereas uh you could take chances and if it didn't work it didn't stick yeah yeah um but speaking of things that stick, uh, you know, we talked about uh, Slayground, and then uh, right after that, you make Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Mm-hmm. Uh, much has been remarked upon Fast Times at Ridgemont mm-hmm. High. So what I'm really interested in discussing is you make this movie uh, that's a, a, a cornerstone of the teen comedy movement, uh, and it becomes so huge. And, you know, it's a movie we're still talking about. I, I saw uh, when you did the, the cast reunion photo uh, with everybody, how wild that must be to think that you're still coming together uh, to talk about this movie, you know, 30 years later. Uh, when did you know 
holy hell, I was in this thing that's beyond, beyond huge. I just always felt that. I auditioned for Stacy, and I thought I was going to get Stacy because they had me and myself and Brian Backer and Phoebe Cates sit there and read the whole movie for all of them over and over and over again, Art Linson and Amy and uh, Cameron and, you know, all these people. And I thought, well, we obviously have this role. So then right. I hear nothing. Then I hear you didn't get it. And I was like, oh. And then they said, we want to play the cheerleader, but you got to fly yourself out. And I was there. I was a little irritated that I had to fly myself out. <laughs> However, you know, I thought it was the right thing to do. And it was the smartest thing I ever did. But it fluctuated. Then the first day on the set was like, I thought, this is magic. And I was so excited. And, and then after we made it, I started to hear that Universal didn't like it and might not release it. This isn't funny. There's an abortion in it, you know, because it's not like funny, ha, ha, ha. Right. And I thought, it's not even going to, that was, that could have happened. Right. But you know what? If you, if you want to know if you have something worthwhile on your hands, you'll know it when everybody almost rejects it. Yeah. Because. <laughs> well, again, I think that's true. It kind of goes back to what we were just talking about is this idea that to, make something with impact you can't always play by the rules no and it's so interesting and i'm sure that you as an actor see this and i as as a writer when you go into rooms they always want a movie in the vein of or like what Mm -hmm. you know or like this is the kind of movie we're making right now but when you think about the movies that have changed this town this industry this pop culture as a whole it's always a movie that at some point someone was like, well, we're not interested in that because that's not what we're doing right now. Well, you, you know the story of how they, they changed the name on Casablanca and they sent it out as something else and everyone in town passed on it? Really? Yes. I didn't know that. Yes. And it wasn't everybody goes to Rick's. It wasn't anything that you could have known. It was just all, they, all, the only thing they changed was the title just to see what would happen. And everyone said, no way. Right. It's so wild to me to think that there is this this idea of you have to break the rules, but a resistance to breaking the rules. But when you think of like mm-hmm. every major movie that has uh, has has made impact, Citizen Kane, Star Wars, Jaws, mm-hmm. these are movies that were all movies that the studio initially was like, there's no way we could do this. Right. Right. And, and now these are the movies that we pretty much only talk about when we don't like, you know. And and also just even shooting a scene. Sometimes when somebody makes a mistake that's when the scene comes alive it's always those mistakes that are such gold yeah or it's those not even mistakes but like that that wacko idea that everyone goes what (laughs) (laughs) all right let's try it well i love and and i love that uh i love that you knew i love that you uh you just felt that magic because that's i have always followed my gut response i totally believe in that and the other movie that we talked about uh, that you were in that caught an audience's attention, and I mentioned it at the top of the show, uh, is very beloved by horror fans, Night of the Comet. Uh, yet again, a cheerleader. But you're a very different kind of cheerleader in this movie. Uh, you're a cheerleader who fights back, and uh, it like, pretty much fights back against the apocalypse. Uh, what I really like about this movie, and you and I talked about it a bit over email when uh, we were talking about you coming on, is... It not only has a big following with horror fans, there are a lot of uh, gay fans who love mm-hmm. this movie, too. And have you noticed that throughout the years? Yes, of course. What do you think it is about this movie that, that uh, draws people? Um, first of all, I think people get that 
it was one of those times when I threw myself in and you know a thousand percent with my whole heart and didn't know if I was going to come back up for air. <laughs> right. Um, I think people get that, mm-hmm. and I think everybody was like that. Um, it just. It's the idea that no matter what happens, and you can be an idiot, you know, nobody's like, you know, a genius there or anything like that. Um, You're going to survive. Right. And we need to know that. We need to believe that we're going to survive. And, you know, it's something that Rambo doesn't make us feel like we could also survive. Right. But Sam and Regina do, you know. And Tom Everhart got the idea. He said, gosh, do you want me to write, like, teen stuff? And so he took teenagers out, and he said, okay. so Because he was, like, a, a newer kind of, like, his last movie before that was Soul Survivor, like, super depressing. Right. Okay, so all about survivor's guilt. So um, he always had that nihilistic kind of thing going on anyway, which really plays well in the movie, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the teenagers said, oh, that would be no problem. Because, you know, we just go down the shooting range and figure out how to use the guns. And then we'd, you know, we'd go shopping and we wouldn't have to pay. And this was all their, their idea of what the end of the world was going to be. And he was stunned by this. And so he just sat down. He wrote it in like 90 minutes. So he talked to teenagers about what they would do at the end of the he world. Said, I don't know what I'm supposed to write. I don't know what these people want. You know what? They're teenagers. Let me ask teenagers what they would do. I really like your point about it connecting with audiences because they're real people surviving mm-hmm. uh, and it's true because in your character you know we, there's that famous mm-hmm. image of you with the, with the machine gun uh, but you are everybody's small town American cheerleader in a way like you know that image of you like in your, your cheerleading outfit with a gun like fighting against zombies uh, but you're right that's not Rambo Rambo seems like mm-hmm. an impossible standard when you watch that movie. Like, not everybody is going to be right. the physicality of Sylvester Stallone or be in the situation. We're not Superman. Right. But to show these two girls faced with, like, in- insane, mm-hmm. like, situation. Just humanity came up and said, not today. Right. <laughs> and and that's, what we, that's what we all have inside of us, and that's what we hope is going to come right. out. And I really like the message that that you bring about the idea that like it's it, this movie, this movie that is fun and, and at times can't be a horror film. It's a celebrated midnight movie mm-hmm. uh, that you yourself think that it's important because it shows that anybody can survive this. And I, I think that's really cool. I really like that. That uh, We all have it inside of us. And no matter, you know, how down on yourself you are. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's even a line where they're showing me going, blah, 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 you can't hear what I'm saying. And they say, of all the great minds in the world, this is who survives. But that's how it would be. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And and um, I get letters, we get remarks and comments. And one of the things that's kind of consistent is um, I had to put my inner Samantha on. I remembered to put my inner Regina on and take care of it. And because somebody was picking on me in the bathroom and I was scared. So I thought, what would Regina do or what would Samantha do? And I did that. And Kathy and I, Catherine Mary Stewart, who plays my older sister, we both said, we have to do that too. Oh. Let's put my energy, you know, Kelly is going to take this, but Samantha wouldn't put up with this shit. I love that. So this character actually has empowered you as well as other they people. They all do. They all people say, "What's your favorite?" They all have empowered me. I mean, the soap opera character taught me to accept 
myself and you know if I wasn't perfect because she was evil and I was so scared to play somebody that I thought people weren't gonna like me because I had this everybody's gonna like me or I'm gonna die right everyone hated me everyone in the United States hated my guts and so I learned how to how to contain that and right. then every single you know and then my uh, character in, in fast times she gets up there and nobody's having anything that she's saying and she's saying it anyway and in real life she didn't do that at an assembly and sean penn didn't throw an airplane at her she went homeroom to homeroom and said the same thing all through the school and didn't give a fuck if people liked her or not and i learned from that because she, she had a passion you know she was she was a real person too it's always interesting to play a real person yeah um is that intimidating it can be it, because if you want to get it right and you don't want to offend them. Right. Um, but you have to figure out how you're going to play it. Right. Uh, I wasn't, I mean, I was thinking about her as a real person in terms of the book in which she described much in much greater t- detail who she was. Right. And so I had s- strong reasons for w- what ends up in the movie. I had strong reasons for it. Like uh, the the line that I put back in, I asked Cameron if I could put back in. Is I'm reading my line, learning my lines for the day, and I went, "This the line isn't in there anymore. This is just a bimbo." And I said, "Cameron, the the line is gone. It takes a lot of courage to get up here and do something you know people will make fun of. That's the whole point." Right. And he said, because he's like doing this very character, he said, "Well, great, try it and see if it's happening." <laughs> and, and you know, it, and then it it makes me happy because then, like twenty years later on the radio, it will be, it, you'll hear um, how they announced years ago, nineteen eighty four, and you hear Sean going, "Hey, bud, let's party," and then you hear me going, "You know, it takes a lot of courage." <laughs> I went, "Oh my god!" So I was so happy with myself that I had enough courage to say, "Let's put this back in." Because I'm not, you know, I, I don't think of myself as being a, a real strong advocate for myself or, or, you know, but I am. And I just have to stop thinking of myself that way because I do advocate for the right thing. What I like what you said about each of these characters and how they have empowered you is uh, the example that you gave for each of them. Uh, the idea mm-hmm. that your character uh, from the soap opera was evil, but she lived unapologetically or your character in fast times uh goes around and says what needs to be said whether people want to hear it or not Mm -hmm. and then in night of the comet you know this is just like what you have to do to survive the through line that i think is is there for all of them although they're all drastically different people is that they each in their way um have to live their truth it's like you know Mm -hmm. that the strength of them is they they have to be who they are and that's what's important about them. Like, you, they cannot care what other people think. They have to, and that's how they survive. And I think that that's really interesting that in, uh, it's all about personal empowerment with each of those characters because to hear you say that they all empowered you in different ways, mm-hmm. I think what I love about it is that um, it's all about just living un- unapologetically. And, and some, I think that's our community, too, with yep. the horror community, which we all felt like weirdos growing up, and the LGBT community. I mean, I, you know, I, I do consider myself part of it because, there, you know, I have the same things in common with that community, even though um, you might not think so right away. And I right. think that's why um, um, uh, um, Night of the Comet especially is so popular. I right. think people know this about me. Yeah. You know, they just feel it. 
Yeah, you know, with the soap thing is like uh, pe- people don't know they're evil. No. You know, and you have to justify those characters. You cannot judge somebody that you're playing. I think we judge each ourselves so harshly, right? And others as well. And and I had to drop that, or I couldn't play the part. You know, like in the chopping mall. Um, I always have a thing like, am I going to be able to run? Because you know, you're only you only have so much stamina, right? And I realized that. You're able to run, well, because you have to, because right. I'm running through that whole thing. A, because you have to, and B, because you're filled with rage right? of, of this, this inanimate thing that doesn't have a heart or doesn't even care, is busy destroying everyone you know. Right. And, and it, you can't let the machine win. So there again. This is the most poetic reading of Chopping Mall I've ever heard. You by cannot the way. <laughs> let the machine win. I love that. Um, I, I I love Chopping Mall. Every time I'm uh, at the Sherman Oaks, uh, well, the newly retrofitted Sherman Oaks Gallery, I it's think it's so weird. There, it is weird. <laughs> it's because, but I know like that's that's where it was, but it's not like an open air mall. It's so which is re- weird when I walk around over there. I just I can't I can't conceive it's the same place. <laughs> Um, so one thing, uh, you know, before we move on from Night of the Comet, because of course it is so celebrated with horror fans, there there are uh, a few quick points that I, I wanted to bring up, because a, a a show that frequently is referenced by a specific generation of LGBT uh, horror fans, um, I don't know if, if a lot of my listeners know this. And Buffy has a direct link to not only Night of the Comet, mm-hmm. but to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, of course, is frequently referenced on the show. Uh, weekly listeners know that uh, because it had such an impact on, on queer uh, audiences in a time where there was not a lot of queer representation on TV. But many of you may not know that uh, the show creator Joss Whedon, when he created the character of Buffy, has gone on the record to say that in creating Buffy and her personality, he was inspired by Kelly's character mm-hmm. in Night of the Comet because here's a cheerleader who fights back against the forces of darkness. With a really smart alecky mouth, too. Yes. Right. And uh, I just, you know, here's like something that became like, a, and yet again, mm-hmm. another cultural touchstone. I, I, when I think that Joss Whedon was watching that movie and drawing inspiration from something that I did years ago, I'm blown away. Yeah. I, I mean, when they did the, a book on him, they did a... a a Joss Whedon book, and they called me to interview me. Mm-hmm. I went, I really am part of this world. Right. They actually called me to, so I gave them an interview, and then uh, Whedon Con, which is a convention that's all Joss Whedon all the time, Right. Um, I did a panel for them called How to Build a Buffy. <laughs> and you know, I just thought, wow, this is like extra um, family that I'm sort of part of. Right. I mean, I don't know any of those people that are making the shows now, but on Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., of all things, one of the characters is obsessed with Chopping Mall. Really? And these, the show's been on a few times, and it's a joke with the characters. They go, you know, in Chopping, chopping Mall, and, they, and he goes, no more about Chopping Mall. And then in one scene, they come over to his house, and Chopping Mall's on the television. And um, so you're woven through the fabric of the Whedon verse. Who knew? And, and I don't know him. You know, I was going to ask. You've never no, met. No, no. Somebody said you have to send him an autographed picture. So I did. <laughs> I, it went into the ethers. Who knows if he ever got it or not? You know. But uh, he could have tossed me a guest spot. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, I mean, w- w- what a good uh, moment to uh, 
bring this up, you know, for people on the internet uh, who who uh, follow Buffy news, uh, we do know that uh, Monica Breen is working on bringing the show back with Joss's blessing. So, you know, if you're out there mm-hmm. listening, Monica or other future writers of Buffy, uh, you need to cast Kelly Maroney in this show because there's no Buffy without Kelly. <laughs> uh, and what a well. great what a great homage. Um, and speaking of remakes, that's mm-hmm. the other thing that I wanted to bring up before we mm-hmm. head off away from uh, Night of the Comet. It was recently announced that Night of the Comet is going to be uh, reimagined, readapted, remade, whatever word people like to use, mm-hmm. uh, by Roxanne Benjamin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what's that like? Just to know that you were part of something culturally that is so significant that people want to keep that story going in a new form. Well, it's not, I don't feel that way about it because they're remaking everything. So right. I don't feel it as, it's like, really? You know, I mean, with these remakes, 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 right. you know. Um so I didn't I didn't think of it as oh they're reimagining our story. I thought right. can't you think of something new to do? Um now I don't know Roxanne but I hear that she's a fabulous person and I look forward to meeting her and I'm sure that I went, I look forward to reading this script. I'm sure it's going to be great. Right. Because I can see that anybody who's going to take this on has a lot of passion for it. Right. Um now Orion Pictures is a boutique version of MGM. Right. When MGM bought um, Night of the Comet, I asked, I, I went on a campaign with Tom Everhart's blessing mm-hmm. to buy it back from us because I got scale plus 10. Right. <laughs> he got no money. We all, you know, and, and a lot of it uh, didn't didn't go the way we wanted it to. And so it was going to be um, meaningful to us to own the movie finally. Right. And they said no. <laughs> no. Their right. standard line now is, it wasn't standard at the time. They said, we're going to develop it ourselves. But what they say to everybody now is, it's not for sale. Right. Whenever anybody goes, because they're on to that now. Somebody comes around, they know that there's, oh, there must be an audience for it because right. they want they want their movie back. Um, so I had tried to do that, and it was no go. And then I would hear throughout the years, oh, you know, um, I'm a gangbang writer. Gangbang writer is, um, it's a group of writers that get together and they, like, they write a movie and everybody's written one line. I don't right, know. Right. So they said, guess what, guess what came through? None of the comment. They said they passed on it because they said it's a story about the two girls. Right. Like, who cares about the special effects and all that stuff? That would happen. And it got passed on, passed on, passed on. And so I thought, well, MGM's just going to sit on it then. Right. But then Orion's, because MGM owns Orion, so it's not like they sold it to anybody else. Right. It's their horror division. Well, It'll be interesting to see what what uh, mm-hmm. becomes of it. It is definitely like in my brain such like a, a quintessential '80s moment that I'm going to be interested to but see. But I tell how. fans they're upset about it. I just say, you know what? It doesn't matter what else they do with it. It's not the the original movie's not going away. It's right. still going to always be there. <laughs> That's what I do find fascinating about remake culture, especially because well, the internet tends to have like uh, vitriolic reactions to everything. Oh yes, like, they do. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is, but people get so upset about remakes, and I, I always want to say, I was like, well, I don't I never have had problems with remakes, in 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 so far mm-hmm. that film is a forever medium, mm-hmm. and if you truly love Evil Dead, Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. whatever. It always exists. Right. Someone making a new version of it does not stop you yeah. from going to watch the original. And it's really like you want to take it all the way back to your Shakespearean training. Mm-hmm. They didn't just do Hamlet once and go, oh, we can't do that again because it's right. been done. When a story impacts pop culture, people want to of put course. their spin on it. And that's what I mean. They I, want I, to participate in the story. Exactly. And I don't want to take that away from anybody. I can't tell you the number of film students who've sent me 
listen for for um, for class. I recreated my version of the morning of the comet, and is it the guy in his apartment, right? Like, doing, like <laughs> I mean, I've seen this over and over and over again, and it's just part of it, you know. And, and speaking of the internet, like overreacting. So, you know, somebody says, uh, "I got to get a ticket. I got to get out there and see that." And I had to say, you know, you know. So far, what we all know is that Roxanne is writing a script. Right. And it takes a long time to get a movie made, and there are many twists and turns along the way. So don't be worried about getting a ticket to the opening, okay? Yeah. We're not there yet. Many, (laughs) many things. You know, other people have, have written treatments of uh, they've they've tried to redo Chopping Mall, and a lot of people have written me and said, um, "I'm going to produce the remake of of Night of the Comet, and I just wanted to let you know I'm doing that out of respect." This was ten years ago, right? So um, um, I don't get upset about it anymore, right? You know, I hope she gives me a job. <laughs> well, fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh, so one thing that I want to ask about, because uh, you have uh, a pretty awesome resume of, of both films. We talked about some of these prolific, uh, some of these very well-known roles. Uh, but you've also done a lot of TV outside of just uh, the soap opera stuff. Uh, and one of the roles I wanted to ask about, because anyone who uh, follows me, speaking of social media, knows that I have a very long uh, love of uh, Angela Lansbury. And you mm-hmm. did an episode of Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> so because I have you here, mm-hmm. I have to ask, uh, what was your experience like on Murder, She Wrote? I was so scared of her. I mean, she was super uber professional. Mm-hmm. And Linda Hamilton was on the show, too. Oh, wow. And she was actually the murderer. You're supposed to think it was me, but it wasn't me. It was her. It's her because she was a psycho. Right. Um, but she comes across as like super okay through the whole show until she's not. Right. Um, Angela Lansbury, she's there. She's present. She shows up on her mark. There's no chit chat. She looks you right in the eye and delivers her lines. And you know that you've had the experience of acting with Angela Lansbury. <laughs> she's not phoning it in. Right. And then she's gone again. And she was having some a family issues, so she spent most of her time in the trailer, which only added to the fact that we we're all scared of her. Um, <laughs> and Linda Hamilton, who has a twin. So, I mean, she had most of all her stuff with Angela Lansbury. Um and she's standing there, and I said, "What's wrong?" She goes, "I want. I always get an autograph for my sister for everything that I do, and I'm I'm nervous to knock on her tr- on her honey wagon, or you know, not a honey wagon. It was a, a like a trailer. Yeah, a, yeah. a huge, huge trailer. She was, you know, the star of the show. I'm afraid to knock on her door. I don't want to, you know. I'm thinking, okay, it's Linda Hamilton. You just worked with her extensively all week long, and right. yet here she is, like." shy to ask her for the autograph and that's what angela lansbury was like it's you know it's funny because when you think of someone whose career like i believe angela lansbury is 94 or 95 and she's been acting since she was a teenager it's just probably it's it's daunting i think to think about you know the so many people she's worked with yeah i I can imagine that it would be very much like a do not screw this up. <laughs> You're thinking to yourself, do not screw this well, up. Well, and that's where the soap opera training came in for you. Like, yeah. We're in and out. Uh, so I have to ask, because I love looking up l- little bits of information about guests. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you are known as uh, an actor, a performer of stage and screen. Um, you have done some producing. Uh, but I also hear you're a magician. <laughs> okay. I don't perform at the Magic Castle because that's the creme de la creme. Okay. People, when they're five years old, dream of performing at the Magic Castle. Right. Um, I was dating and then married 
a magician who doesn't perform anymore, but he wrote for their, they have this big magazine that's, you know, very important to them and no one, there's the thing, you're a magic superstar, no one else in the rest of the world knows who you are, <laughs> but they know, you know, right. so Genie Magazine, no one else knows, they know what right. this is, um, and he wrote for them, and I didn't want to be the girlfriend, and then when we, he'd go around and interview people, you know, I was a muggle, and so they weren't really going to talk. They're serious about that. You do not discuss stuff in front of muggles. And I just hated it. I felt so lame. And so I wanted to be a magician member. Right. And so I, and you know, they've been doing this since they're eight, you know, for hours and hours every day. Right. And, you know, I'm like, okay, I've been practicing like, what, two months? I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, you know, I mean, it was, so of course, needless to say, I didn't pass the first two times. But on the third time, I had they they passed me and they, they and I made them laugh and they were like okay you deserve to pass because I was also concerned that I was his fiance and and also it's a cross genre so the, a lot of horror people at the you know a lot of mag magicians are f super fans of horror right and I think that first they thought well we can't have people letting us let you know thinking that we let her in because because she's a, a horror actress that we know right and so. They were especially tough on me, and I'm glad they were because when when I made it, I knew I made it. I didn't have that sick feeling of they let me in, right? And so, no, I don't perform there because you know I'm a grown up and I don't have five hours a day to practice. But do you still perform magic from time to time, or? Um, I'm a little shy to do so because, like I said, I don't have. It, it takes hours and hours and hours to get any good. Right. It is some. It is serious. I mean, it's the most serious art form. You cannot believe the time that they put into this and in front of the mirror. And now they tape themselves so that, you know, I mean, it's holy cow. But there are, like I said, there's a lot of there's a lot of actors and um, who are magicians and members there. And then the magicians mm -hmm. like Rob Zabrecki is a horror actor, is also a magician. And before that, he was a, a punk rock. Um, he had a punk rock band right. in the 90s. Um Steve Valentine, who's in movies, and he's also a fabulous magician. A lot of people, Michael Zalde, who owns Spectral Motion, right. is he just did his first run in the close-up gallery. And he's a, a magnificent magician, but he was nervous. He's like, I'm finally working in the close-up gallery. It's a dream come true. I'm thinking, really? Because you're Michael Zalde. <laughs> <laughs> you made the outfit for Birdman and stuff. But this, is, this is a dream come true. But it is, and and that's what's fun. I mean, Cary Grant was the president, and um, Neil Patrick Harris was the president, and you know, it's like I said, I already said it. It's a huge crossover. I would never have the guts to get. I could if I wanted to go downstairs, and there, there's a place called the Hat and Hair. Uh -huh. um, it's a bar thing, and then there's also it used to be the, called the museum. It's called something different now because they 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 renovated the whole place. People have said to me, Magic Castle isn't that kind of a dump? Well, yes, it was, but they have a new general manager, and now the food is it's they have a master chef in there. The food oh, is fantastic. They renovated everything. Um, it's it's beautiful. I mean, some things I wish they left, like the bathroom they used to have, um, you know, because Milt Larson was a comedy writer. Right. And so he dragged gags from every set that rapped. You know, he's like, there's a, there are gags all over the place. And some of them are goofy and some of them are cool. Um, but anyway, it's not what it was. Right. And so, um, and he's, he's famous. Um, his name is Joe Furlow. 
in, in the restaurant world, he is famous for what he's done with that place. This and, is the chef. Yeah, yeah, because, well, no, he's the general manager. Oh, okay. um, the, the chef is just Jason Sperber. Okay. And, um, and they got a sommelier there. Now, I mean, they are serious. Because um, there, there's a time when it could have closed, and everyone said, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. What's well, an institution? Mm-hmm. And if you ever want to come, I'm a magician member, so... Oh. And you can only get in if you know a magician sure. member. Yeah, well, maybe. Uh, in so fact, I was almost—I was going to ask you a, a little while ago if you wanted to come. Something or another was going on. I can't think what it was. And I thought, I bet you'd like that. You know, I'm—I'm al- I'm always down for an adventure too. Uh-huh. Uh, so before we head off into the night, you know, we've talked about like many of these different hats you've worn. You've been a horror icon, a soap opera star. Mm-hmm. You've been in uh, pop culture defining movies. You're a magician, a producer. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there a role that you have not yet got to do that you've always wanted to do or something that uh, in your career that you mm-hmm. as- aspire to? Mm-hmm. I want to um, I have been I've watched myself on tape doing this and um, I really want to play and just a total bitch made of iron. And um there's so much about me that is so uh, relatable. <laughs> it's like, no, you know, I want people to be afraid of me. Well, I think, something. I think when we started this interview, you, you, the very first few people that you mentioned when you were uh, uh, imagining movies, like enraptured in movies, uh, you said that you were drawn to Betty Davis mm-hmm. and Susan Hayward. And to hear you say that, it's kind of like you're waiting for your Betty Davis role. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I want to. I want to allow myself to come into that kind of power, that right. kind of ownership of the energy, because the energy has propelled me my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't really owned it and 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 let it be as scary as it really probably is. I mean, you know, the survival instinct there is really pretty right. scary. Um, so uh, that's I'm waiting for that that kind of a thing. But you know what? I mean. Every I feel like my parts are meant to be, right. and like I said, I feel like this is a spiritual path. So when I get something, I go, okay, this is what's supposed to happen, and I'm always going to make discoveries about. I always know in retrospect why that part happened, right? And um, so they're all important for me. If all I ever do is play ditzy moms again, that will also be something that I'll continue to hone and find something new in every single time because I always do. I, I, I don't I always I'm always feeling like a beginner like there's always so much more to learn you know and and why miss that opportunity I mean even when I get on stage to do I do 99 seat theater and stuff here and readings mm-hmm. and so forth I always learn so much I think I should be doing this every day right I really like that you find empowerment and education in everything that you do Absolutely. and uh it's just, you know, it's a really inspiring message, and I'm very, very glad that you came to talk to us about that. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here, too. I was honored to be here. Um, speaking of, of roles and things that you're working on, is there anything that you can tell us that is coming up next? Well, um, I have a movie coming out called Exorcism at 60,000 Feet, which is, uh, it's it's just, it's boy humor. I mean, it's just wrong. <laughs> It's just plain wrong. There's we do so many things like that I can't believe we're doing that. But it, people, I think people will find it hilarious. And it's a it's a a, a festival of a genre people. There's um, um, Adrian Barbeau and Bill Mosley and Lance Henriksen and I mean uh, Byling and uh, Donald um, Kevin O'Connor and 
um, Matthew Moy, and I mean, so you see all these people get on a plane. I always think if I saw people, all those people getting, I think unless they're on their way to a horror convention, I'm getting off this plane right now <laughs> because something's going to happen. That this is just like too big of a of a red flag. All these people in one place, unless unless they're there to sign autographs. So um, um, so there's that, and that's they had some problems with the um with sound mixing or something like that. So it delayed it, but that's actually better that it comes out earlier in 2019 than they were going to... Things come out right now. They're all smushed together. There's so much product out there. Right. Well, the holidays kind of are a vacuum, yeah. too. Yeah, I mean, I can't possibly see everything that I want to see, and it's it's very frustrating and kind of overwhelming. So I'm kind of glad that that's... And then I also... Tyler McIntyre, I don't know. He's a very exciting young filmmaker that um, he and his and his crew... I think we're going to see some some incredible things out of. He did Suicide Girls, okay, which swept the awards a couple of years ago. So this is a short film that he did called "Blowing Up Everywhere," and um, he said that he was a fan of Night of the Comet. And so, "Blowing Up Everywhere," of course, it's the you know kind of a. So I play the um, character's mom. He's talking to me on on Skype. Um, and then also there's something, and as you know, is if we get if they get the money, right? Because it's such a challenge now. Everybody's kind of on their own um, when they're trying to accumulate a budget to shoot a movie. It's not for the faint-hearted, right? Anybody, no matter what you might think of the finished product, anybody that gets a movie, gets the budget, gets it shot, gets it into post and out of post, gets it distributed, and plunks it someplace where you can see it. Kudos. Yeah. I mean, just bow to them because it's, it's something, you know, I mean, I don't, it's something hu- superhuman to get a film finished. I would say that every movie is a miracle. I would too. Yeah. I would too. And so um, that is, uh, that's actually a very evil, not evil. She's a very cold character and very wealthy. So maybe that's my, maybe that's my part. Maybe oh. that's, the, that's the one. Well, fingers maybe crossed. I called her in. <laughs> It's called To Avenge, and um, um, very cool people involved with it. So that's what's happening so far. Well, uh, that's all stuff to very much look forward to. Uh, Kelly, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter. My name, okay, people spell my name wrong, and it's cool because everyone does. I did an episode of True Blood, and they misspelled my name in the credits. So it's like, oh, no. But I'm so used to it. because So it's K-E-L-L-I-M-A-R-O-N-E-Y. And I'm, and it's the same because I don't want to confuse everybody. Twitter Kelly Maroney, um, Instagram Kelly Maroney, um, Facebook. Um, I have one with my married name on it. That's um, but professionally, there's actress Kelly Maroney and the Kelly Maroney official Facebook group. And I have a YouTube channel that I named early on. I named it Loves Nerds. You can also <laughs> find it through my name though. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. And please keep your eyes open for these uh, future projects that uh, Kelly just mentioned where you can see her next. But also, you know, please revisit the classics, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Night of the Comet, Shopping Mall. Uh, And I am just so happy to have this horror icon with us on Dead for Filth. And uh, thank you. You're going to give me a big head. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank Thank you. Thank you. That's lovely. Thank you. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti. Yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night. And good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. 
The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months. <laughs>